Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi, everyone. This is Rohit from Life Self Mastery. I'm really excited to have Mac Conwell, who's a founder and managing partner of Rare Breed Ventures. Uh, Mac is a former software engineer and two-time founder. One of Mac companies failed, and the other went on to have a successful exit. Uh, Rare Breed Ventures is a pre-seed fund that invests in exceptional founders outside of large tech ecosystems earlier than everyone else. A big thank you to Adam from Buffalo Market for introducing me to Mac. Uh, welcome to the show, Mac. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. So, you know, uh, uh, what got you interested uh, in in startups? You know, if you've been a software engineer and a two-time founder, uh, how did the journey start? Yeah, really, the journey started. So, you know, I started off as a, as a government contractor here in the States. And a good friend of mine by the name of Patrick Jackson, he's the CTO of the startup in Silicon Valley called Disconnector, a VPN software company. And um, Patrick was the first person I knew who was like using his skills as a developer to create products to make money. So he's like the, one of the first people I know who, who was making iPhone apps. And we're talking about like back in 2007, like very early days of the iPhone and, you know, making websites to make money. And he was the first person I knew who quit his job and moved to San Francisco to go start a business. And so as he was doing that, a group of us who were close friends of his all started doing the same. We started trying to create businesses that we figured could make money while we slept. That was the goal to make, to create a business that can make money while you sleep. Right. And so that kind of started me and some of my friends on that journey. And it just kind of spiraled out of control from there. Got it. And, uh, you know, uh, you've had uh, one successful exit and one of your startups failed. Um, how did, uh, your decision-making framework impact uh, when your, your startup failed. You know, we, we talk a lot about startups raising a lot of funding and success, but but what what really happens to a founder and how does their decision-making framework uh, change when a startup fails? And then uh, how did you get back and uh, again restart? Uh, so after my, so my first startup was the one that we had a small exit for. My second one's the one that failed. And okay. Failure sucks. <laughs> I would tell you it was it was one of the hardest experiences of my life. Um, I basically I tell people I took a six month sabbatical where I basically just hid in my house for six for six months and didn't want to see anybody because like I just didn't want to see anybody have to talk about the company that I was you no know, no longer working on. Um, and you know I went through a bout of depression. It was terrible. Um, but. And, you know, this is stuff that people don't talk about. But the thing for me that was really helpful was while I was going through that period, one, recognizing that the failure of my business didn't change the way that my friends and loved ones thought about me. Like the way they thought and felt about me never changed and never wavered. Like they weren't my friends because I was doing a startup or because they thought I was going to be successful. They were my friends because they loved and cared about me. And just because like I didn't, make a successful company the second time around didn't mean I wasn't smart. Didn't mean they didn't respect me. Didn't mean they didn't want to, you know, support me. So that was really helpful. The other thing that was helpful was, you know, these things called bills, they just never stopped coming. So even though I stopped working, I wouldn't do anything like bills are still happening. So like at some point I had to get out there and figure out a way to pay those bills again. So that's how I was able to get myself out of that funk, but failure sucks, man. 
No, absolutely. I think failure, uh, you know, a lot of people don't talk about failures, but uh, failure uh, uh, sucks. And I think uh, you've got a great support system where your friends and family were able to, you know, get you back on feet. Um, uh, you know, do you think Silicon Valley uh, and San Francisco uh, will lose its network effects since we're in the you know midst of COVID for, for more than a year? What are your thoughts on uh, you know, on other geographies and other areas also will they also be able to build a billion dollar companies? Well, I do believe founders who have the ability to build billion dollar companies are, can be found anywhere. Like that's fundamental to my belief. Will Silicon Valley's stronghold on funding specifically in the U.S. change now that, you know, during the pandemic, everybody's doing everything virtual? I hope so, but I don't know, right? Uh, I would love to believe that it will I hope that it will. You know, we're seeing things trend in that direction, but I wouldn't be surprised if we looked up two years from now and everything goes back to the way it was. And a lot of it just has to do with, you know, being able to do calls over Zoom is efficient, but people still, uh, I think, over, not over index, but I think people put too, um, put too much weight on direct, direct interactions, right? Uh, physical, in-person interactions. I can have the exact same conversation with you over Zoom as I can in person. So why does us talking in person have to make that much of a difference, right? Now, granted, you know, technology fails and there can be issues along the way. But generally speaking, being able to communicate with somebody, meet somebody, whether it be through Zoom, through phone calls, through text messages, you can get to know and work with a person just fine. And so I think if we keep that mindset, we will see this change. But I don't know. Right. Like I said, I wouldn't be surprised two years from now, if people like, hey, you know, we invest in you. We want you to come to Silicon Valley. There is something to the idea of the density of capital and density of talent being in one place, because now my ability to make introductions and support become really easier because everybody's in one location. Right. I can make a one hour drive and get you to any and everybody you need to get to all in one place. And I can help you find the best talent without that talent having to relocate because they're already there, right? It's one thing to like, you know, I was just talking to a founder recently. You know, they're based here in Baltimore, in Baltimore, Maryland, but they just got some funding and, you know, they've had an investor who's like, hey, we want you to move to Ohio where we are. To pick up your family and move them across the country to a place that you're not familiar with, it's not as appealing, right? Right. But if everybody's in one place, it makes it easier. So, uh, you know, there, there's there's something to that. But I do hope that this trend continues because what we have seen is during the pandemic, as everybody's forced to do things virtual, we are seeing investors who normally haven't left out of their geographical area now talking to founders in places they normally wouldn't talk to. And so that is a benefit. And I, hopefully that stays, hopefully that, that stays the way it is because that'll be better for the whole ecosystem. But if it doesn't, that just means more opportunity for me. So selfishly, you know, I can live with that. Very interesting. And, um, you know, uh, what, are, uh, what, are, what are some of the main misconceptions uh, that, that are still there with underrepresented founders, uh, especially when it comes to, to uh, founders uh, who are women, uh, they, they get, uh, you know, just 9% of, of the entire funding and, special, and, and you know, other uh, you know, uh, on the other underrepresented founders. So, so you, you know, what wh- what are some of the main misconceptions uh, which the startup world has about uh, underrepresented founders? I think a lot of it has to do around with pattern matching. There yeah. aren't as many 
founders of these underrepresented profiles you could point to, not that they haven't built successful companies, but have built unicorns that give back venture returns, right? It's not just about, do these people have the ability to create good companies or successful companies? That's fundamentally different than from the investment world of, I need you to have the potential to create a unicorn within less than, you know, call it five to eight years. That's a really hard bar, high bar. And not as many people have, not as many profiles of people have done it. And so because underrepresented founders haven't gotten funded for so long, you have a group of folks who say, hey, I don't know if founders who look like that had the chance to get uh, to be create unicorns, but we haven't been funding them for so long that it kind of skews all the numbers. And so now they use those skewed numbers against these underrepresented founders. That's crazy. Um, the other thing is you'll find founders who are from underrepresented backgrounds who are making products that are specifically for their communities and people and other investors will be like, well, that's a very niche market. You know, I think that market might be too small. Well, one, most of these niche markets still can hold multi-billion dollar companies is number one. Number two is just because they build a product for their community doesn't mean only people from their community are going to use it, right? Like if you look at a TV show like Insecure on HBO, right? Like it's, it's a TV show written by, you know, some great writers telling the story of this black woman, like a coming of age story of a black woman. It's for black women. But plenty of other people watch it too. Like, and like HBO didn't make the show because only black women are going to watch it. They made the show because everybody's going to watch it, right? Hey. But granted, Issa Rae created that show for Black women, but everybody watches it. It's the same thing. And so those are kind of the, some of the misconceptions or, or some of the things that come up that hold funders back from moving forward when it comes to underrepresented founders. Mailman is an email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions, and making your days calmer and more productive, you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. And just to follow up on that, you know, what, what can LPs do to encourage uh, more underrepresented founders uh, or backed? What we can do is we probably need to over-index on investing in underrepresented founders now just so we can get this wave started. It's one of those things where we're so far in going in the wrong direction that we probably have to overcorrect to get back to a, a middle ground, right? And so that's just investing in as many of them as you can because what we're going to see over time is a bunch of them going to fail, right. but we're going to get enough in the funnel that we'll get a couple winners and along the way, as we know, many entrepreneurs don't hit their success in their first one, but it's their second or third one. So we can get more into the community, get them into the networks. Because that's the other thing. A lot of these underrepresented founders aren't in these networks. So getting them plugged into the network will actually increase the ability to show those numbers of successful outcomes from underrepresented founders over the course of, let's call it 15 to 20 years. And that's really the big thing that's need, that needs to happen so that we can have the numbers and show the wins to back up everything that we anecdotally know to be true. Right, got it. And, uh, you know, I want to talk about Ray Breed uh, Ventures. Uh, are you uh, stage and sector agnostic? So we are sector agnostic. Um, the stages we tend to invest in are pre-seed and seed. Every now and then we'll do something, a slightly later stage, just 
you know, for the right founder, right company. Um, you know, we are an investor in a company called Main Street. There, you know, we were in a growth round of theirs, you know, it's probably the largest valuation we'll ever invest in. But, you know, when you see a good opportunity, it's a good opportunity, right? My job as an investor is to make money for my LPs, for my investors, right? Um, but we um, we like to invest across the board. And that just speaks to my skill set as a generalist. Got it. And, you know, how do you approach portfolio construction? Uh, how much of concentrated, uh, you know, portfolio uh, should one have? It's different because every, every fund has a different approach. And really, <clears throat> a fund strategy tends to be dictated by the size of their fund. The larger your fund is, the later stage you have to invest. Because, like, if you have a $100 million fund, the amount of work it takes to do a half a million dollar investment and then do a $5 million investment, it's the same amount of work, right? right? And so it's just easier to manage doing fewer larger checks than it is a bunch of smaller checks. And so every investor has their own strategy for us. Uh, as a pre-seed fund, we do do smaller checks, but we do larger checks than once you typically see a pre-seed. So our, our, our target check is 250000 So to give a pre-seed company that much money, some people scoff at it and be like, that's a lot of money to give a pre-seed. But for us, uh, the math works out where if we get a few winners, our economic returns from that can be really um, significant. And we're giving entrepreneurs enough capital to help them do what they need to do so that in 12 to 18 months, they should be able to raise more, whether they raise any more capital outside of ours or not. Um, that's really a big thing for us. Got it. And, uh, you, you know, when you, when you mentioned about, uh, you know, putting in around $250,000, uh, do you also look at uh, Pro data and you know see it in the on the board uh, when you come in so early. Uh, sorry, we do require a pro data. That is big for us. Um, we don't necessarily need to be on the board. We'll get we'll ask for information rights. You know, we want to know what's going on. But generally, we invest in companies so early that whether we're on the board or not, I'm usually the, my entrepreneur's first call anyway. Um, right. I like to be there to support them and help them out as much as I can. That's something we care about a lot at Rare Breed, and that's probably why Adam suggested you talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. And uh, you know, do you, do you believe it is uh, is it possible to really build ownership across uh, rounds today? Uh, uh, you know, uh, building up uh, a stake of around 20 percent uh, in in the in the next uh, couple of rounds. That's possible, um, but it's going to be dictated more so by your relationship with the entrepreneur. Because as we're seeing, a lot of the larger firms are starting to invest earlier and earlier because there have been so many early stage funds that have come out now that they're had that the later stage firms are having a harder time competing. So now the later stage firms are coming in earlier and offering bigger checks, yeah. right? So for a fund like Rare Breed, if we want to stay in and, and you want to protect that ownership, you just have to already have that relationship with the founder. So like if SoftBank comes in, it's like, hey, we don't want to wait till your next round. We're just going to give you 20 million a day and like forget all your other investors. Well, then that's stuff to then I need the entrepreneur to be like, no, 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 you know, Rare Breeze already in. My other investors are already in. They're already going to get this much. You know, this is how much space will be left for you, SoftBank, if you want to come in. But that's only that can only happen based on relationship building that you do with the founders, because they're going to get those kind of opportunities if their companies are growing and doing what they're supposed to do. And so, you know, that's that's some company to me to make sure that I'm adding so much value for my founders that they're willing to fight for me to stay in rounds. And, you know, interestingly, you pointed out about uh, about SoftBank, and uh, you know, if you look at 
Asia, you have uh, Sequoia, which has come up with Search, uh, uh, they're investing into really early stage, and SoftBank has also started getting into, into early stage. Uh, do you think there's an oversupply of capital when it comes to you know early stage or pre-seed and uh, seed stage uh, capital? No, because there's there's because here's the thing, right? The pre-seed and seed stage, that's where most entrepreneurs are. Right? Right. So there's so many entrepreneurs like. You'll never have enough money for that. And the other thing is you're writing so much smaller checks at that stage that the vast majority of the money in the space is still later stage stuff. Because like, you know, when you get to a series C or series D, you know, cutting a $150 million check is part of a $400 million round. Like that $400 million could account for, you know, let's call it 20% of all pre-seed and seed deals that are going to get done in a year, right? right. Um, and so, the, and so there, there's, there's plenty of room for folks to come at pre-seed plus like you just never know like the, like look at roblox i think it took roblox almost like 17 years to ipo right. for when right. they started like get started in 2004 who knew that they were going to be what they are today right right but them getting that capital and being capitalized throughout the throughout the throughout their life cycles what led them to where they are now right and so those those pre-seed or seed investors back then who came in super early like you gotta, you gotta imagine they they had some worries some somewhere sometimes around there, right? Like, like that that was a little skittish at times. And so the more money we have going in earlier, the more chances we're going to have for the the bigger outcome. So it's always wrong. Got it. And uh, you know, are there are there any sectors which uh, you you are interested in, like especially like uh, fintech or edtech, and you know how how do you make uh, decisions when you look at so many of different sectors and companies uh, to come into your portfolio? I think for us, it's really thinking about, so, you know, we, we mentioned we look for two things. One, um, founders that have a clearly repeatable or unique customer acquisition strategy, and then physical products and markets that have lacked innovation for 10 or more years. And really, the, for us, the big thing is looking at founders who are thinking very critically around customer acquisition, experience, and retention. Because those are the three pillars that if you can figure those parts out, you probably have a chance to be the win. Because what we know is that having the best product in the market doesn't necessarily account for being the winner, right? There's plenty of products out there that are way better than anything else out there, and they're not winning markets. But it's having a good product and having a great customer acquisition um, customer acquisition channel, and being able to make sure your customers love it, and that'll keep your customers there long term. You can do those three things. It doesn't matter what industry you're in. You got a chance to win. As long as the market's big enough and you got a good team, you figure out those three parts that allows you that 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 can point to a winner. And the reason that's big for me is that allows me and my team to strip out our biases. And now um, we can just look at a company based on how their 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 business is running and how customers love them, right? And that's how I tell my team we're going to be the firm that never misses out on the next banks. Cause it's so easy to let your biases get in the way that like, I don't know anything about women's wear or like why a woman would want Spanx. Like that, like that's not going to resonate with me, but if I see that women keep buying them and they love them and that you're making money, well, there might be something there, whether I understand it or not. And so that's the big thing for me. All right. Interestingly, you know, you, you, you're talking about customer uh, acquisition uh, that, you know, entrepreneurs uh <clears throat> really has his execution uh, done well. But uh, how do you look at CAC to LTV ratio in the first few years? Um, because it's difficult to determine uh, your, your, your CAC to LTV ratio in the, the first few years. Today, I have an interesting stat for you. Did you note that the founder of Beautiful Lives 
increased the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash social pilot to get a 14-day free trial. So when you're thinking about cap valuation, when you're talking about like, like your, your, your cap on like your convertible note or safe note or your valuation, it's really what I tell entrepreneurs, the way it kind of nets out, it's like, it's a simple math problem, right? It's like, how much money are you trying to raise? How much equity is the VC or investor want to own? And then who has what leverage, right? Yeah. So you want to raise a million dollars. I want to own 20%. I want to own 10%. And you're in the process of thinking about giving up 20. Okay, well, here's 500,000. I can find another investor, put another 500,000. It gets your million and your valuation is going to be at 5 million. So that means the new million we put in counts for 20. Me and this other VC each have half of it. So that means I get my 10%. They get their 10%. They get 20, right? That's the million dollars. And that means your valuation is five, right? Just everybody, you know, you need the million. We each needed 10. We got to the number we need to be at, right? Simple math problem. The thing is, once you get there, then it's about what who has what leverage, right? Typically, if the VC has the leverage, then the number is probably just going to stay where it is or maybe even go lower, right? Instead of $5 million, it might be a $4 million cap. Or if you're on the other side where you're an entrepreneur, like, hey, I'm raising a million dollars, but I got 28 other firms who are interested in investing in this round. So our valuation is now going to be $20 million. Well, then now me as the VC, I just have to decide how much I like the company and how badly do I want to get in it. And so, like, that's not the target that I was going for, but this is the only chance I get to invest in it. Well, you know, I might as well go for it, right? Because, like, if Uber tells you, like, hey, we know you want to come in at this five, but we got a bunch of people. So if you want to come in, it's going to be a 30. Well, if you put in a million dollars in Uber at a $30 million valuation, you're still really rich at the end of the day, right? You made a bunch of money. Right. And so those are the trade-offs you have to make, but it all depends on, but it starts off with the initial calculation of how much are you trying to raise and how much of the VC or investors want to own. And then the tug and pull starts to come about who has what leverage and where that leverage comes from. That leverage could come from customers. It could come from revenue. It could come from giant partnerships or it could just come from FOMO because there's just a bunch of people who want it. Right. So that's the way to think about it. Got it. And, uh, you know, uh, when you invest so early, uh, you, you're always looking at, at the best team, but who do you think makes, you know, the best founders in, in your opinion? Mm, I mean, great founders come in so many different types of profiles, but I'm always partial to somebody who's um, uh, um, an expert in a specific field and is now building a solution to a problem that they experienced in that field. Right. Somebody who's worked in the industry and like, yeah, this needs to change. So I'm going to build something to fix that. And the part about that is because they already know the hard part, which is the ins and out of that specific industry. They might understand the regulations. They might already have relationships with potential customers and partners. There's a lot of advantages in that, as opposed to somebody who's just an engineer who could build some cool stuff. It's like, hey, I think I saw I found the problem. I can build something to, to solve that. Now they still gotta they gotta fill in the gaps of the rest of their team to gain all that other institutional knowledge, right? It's a lot easier to already have institutional knowledge and find somebody to build a product for you than to be somebody who could just build a bunch of stuff, but then having to figure out the the business part can be difficult. Got it. And 
you know uh, the the name of the podcast is life cell mastery and you know maybe we'll talk about the value systems uh, which uh, I wanted to understand what what was your value system that led you to build uh, rare beat ventures which would you know differentiate yourself from other other vc firms i think the big thing for me um the thing about rare breed was there there were there were two entrepreneurs that changed my life One was a woman building a product in the market in an industry that hadn't had um, any innovation in our lifetime and ended up having to become a surrogate mother to raise the money to start building her prototype. And the other one was a founder in Dallas, Texas, uh, a Latin gentleman who had customers, had an amazing channel partner, was doing all the right things and trending in the right direction and yet couldn't get funding from anybody and you know nobody was paying attention to him. And it's like, here are two founders making amazing products and building incredible companies. And neither one of them can find backing. And one's because she's a black woman in Baltimore. And the other one's because he's a Latin guy in Dallas, Texas. And it's like, okay, we, we, we can solve for that, right? I can solve for the, I can solve the money issue, right? I can't solve, you know, you being a good entrepreneur, you having a good idea, or you being in the market, or you getting customers. I, I can't help with that. But like, you know, you got to have some of that already. But the, whether or not you know the the you already got all the other stuff together and you just need capital to move faster like i can solve for that and so that was the big thing for me i saw that there was opportunity and there were a lot of um investors who were ignoring it and so like i didn't want to ignore it Very interesting and uh, you know uh, we had adam who uh, from buffalo market who came on the podcast and uh, he was kind enough to you know introduce introduce uh, uh, us to you uh, he he talked about uh, getting elizabeth yin uh, from hustle fund uh, who was one of the customers uh, uh, for his business but you know what was your story and how did you get the investment deal for for buffalo market so it's funny um the way buffalo market happened was adam's partner sean sent me a dm on twitter oh. uh months before they started fundraising he's like hey i like what you're talking about want to meet you like we should talk and so i met with sean and i thought what they were doing was interesting and then he introduced me to adam and then we got to watch them for a few months and adam was just hitting it out the park every step of the way it was just like every time i looked up everything he told me he was going to do he was doing and then exceeding like every month He was hitting his numbers, he was making things happen. He was tweaking the business model, getting smarter about it every month. And so then, you know, when it came to January when he was deciding to raise capital, you know, me and the team talked about it. It was pretty easy for us to get to a yes. You know, he did everything he said we were going to do. He was growing really quickly and uh he's probably going to end up making me look really really smart one day. No, absolutely. I think Adam was uh, was one of the best, uh, you know, podcast episodes we did. And um, you know, how, how do you how do you usually get your uh, deal flow uh, from you know other ecosystems? Uh, considering that you know you're not in one of the uh, you're not in Silicon Valley or New York for that matter. Well, part of it, I, you know, if if you follow me on Twitter, I do a lot of branding around rare breed, and so having that brand presence definitely helps. Uh, I speak at a lot of accelerators and incubators all across the country and now internationally. Um I like to go into communities and like get to know the innovation in small business community and places. And then I have a lot of people just reach out to me directly. You know whether it's LinkedIn, whether it's Twitter, whether it's just emails. And then you know I have a huge network of other investors who send me stuff all the time. So um 
you know, I get deals all over from all over the place. And, you know, and then I have an amazing team who's always finding deals too. So, you know, we're always seeing exciting stuff. Uh, got it. Mac, I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? My favorite business book. Uh, I, I want to say Lean Startup because that's like a book that I still like listen to regularly. Um, but then, and this is going to be biased because I'm, I'm like listening to it right now. And it speaks to me from a very personal place, but it's a book. Uh, Why should all the white guys have all the fun? Um, it's an autobiography from Reginald Lewis. Um, at one point was the richest black man in America. Um, he is originally from Baltimore and was a lawyer and later became the head, uh, started his own private equity firm. I'm a oh. black guy from Baltimore starting a venture capital firm. So like for me, that book speaks very personally to me. So I put that on the list, but, um, uh, but for, I still, to this day, I tell founders, go, go read Lean Startup first. Like if you're just getting started, start there. <laughs> and then we can work through some of the other stuff. Got it. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes. And, you know, if you could go back in time when you, when you started uh, Rare Ventures, uh, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? Um, what would I have done differently? I mean, I'm still so early on, right? I'm still new and all this, but I think, I think I would have started protecting my time on my calendar sooner. Um, you know, there was a couple months there where my calendar was crazy where I'm doing like 20 to 25 meetings every day, you know, not really sleeping well, just always working. I'd have probably put that in check sooner. Um, and I might have been more, I'd have probably tried to have been smarter about my initial reach, uh, reaching out for people to be LPs in our fund or to invest in the fund. But, you know, everything's, you know, to this point, you know, we're raising under 506C designation so we can publicly solicit it. Me being able to tell people, hey, if you want to be an LP in Rare Breed, go to rarebreed.vc. Our minimum check size is 25K. You can pay that over two years if you so choose. Um, you know, that's that's been really powerful and it's allowed me to, to generate some early capital and, you know, been able to deploy as I go. So things have been good. All right. And uh, do you have any favorite online tools, for example, uh, uh, you know, uh, Zoom, Slack, Gmail? What was the question? I'm sorry. Uh, do you have any favorite online tool, for example, oh. uh, Zoom, Slack? Uh, favorite online to tools, uh, probably Undock for my calendar. Uh, Zoom, I hate Google Meet. I hate it when people give me meetings for Google Meet. I prefer to be Zoom. I also hate Microsoft Teams because it takes me forever to get on because I never use it. So Zoom is amazing. Um, Bevy, um, full disclosure, I'm an angel investor in Bevy, but Bevy's awesome for like, you know, virtual events. So give a shout out to Bevy. Uh, so those are some of my favorite digital tools. Got it. We'll put that in the show notes. Uh, Mac, uh, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about Rare Breed Ventures? Best way to reach out to me is to follow me on Twitter at Matt Conwell, M-A-C-C-O-N-W-E-L-L. You'll get all the information about me, updates for Rare Breed, and feel free to DM me. Uh, if you DM me, there's no guarantee that I'm going to respond. So if you don't hear from me, just, just bump it up and, and keep bumping it until I do. Like, you know, how me respectfully don't don't go overboard but just keep putting it in my in my inbox i'll get to it all right uh we'll we'll put that in the show notes uh mac uh, thank you so much for taking your time speaking to us i really enjoyed my conversation with you absolutely man it was a fun one 
Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.